American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. So let's look at the rural South and let's see what happened after the Civil War there. In particular, let's look at what kind of labor system replaced slavery in the cotton districts because cotton was so important to the pre-Civil War U.S. economy. And of course, many policymakers wanted the commercial production of cotton to continue to be an essential piece of the U.S. economy. What replaces slavery specifically is an institution called sharecropping. And as many of you already know, there were deeply inefficient, pre-modern, destructive and impoverishing aspects to the system of sharecropping. Now, a lot of people would say the fact that sharecropping in some ways was considered to be another kind of slavery, a slavery of debt uh, rather than a slavery of the whip and the sale of people uh, as slaves away from their family, that this shows that slavery itself was inefficient and pre-modern. In economic terms, though, I think what it actually shows is that slavery was an extremely efficient process for producing cotton. And the failures of sharecropping, once the use of force and the selling of people is taken away, show that those had been essential aspects of the production of cotton and the U.S. success at producing cotton in the pre-war period. But here's what sharecropping was actually useful for, despite its economic inefficiencies. What it was useful for was keeping African Americans and increasingly poor whites economically marginalized, and soon enough, politically marginalized as well. And those were important goals for the people who wanted to run the South, even though their own economic power in relative terms shrank dramatically compared to the growth of the North, they wanted to be able to continue to control a separate regional economy. And sharecropping was, from their perspective, an important piece of that puzzle. So what is sharecropping? Well, in essence, it's pretty simple. It's a contract between someone who owns land and has some capital on the one hand, and on the other hand, somebody who's willing to work, who owns their own labor, because of course, now they're no longer slaves. And sharecropping in practice evolves in the wake of emancipation. As enslavers who no longer command labor and often don't have the money to pay decent wages, make deals with formerly enslaved people. They run something like this. If you grow a cotton crop on my land, I will give you one third of the crop. So we'll take the crop, we'll divide it up into thirds, I'll sell my two thirds, you sell your one third. And in return, not only will I provide you with land, but I'll provide you with uh, mules to pull plows, I'll provide you with plows and other tools, I'll provide you with credit at the local store so that you can get food that will enable you to feed your family through the year while the crop is growing. Now, uh, in practice, what this often turned out to be was an extremely inequitable relationship. If you're borrowing credit, uh, if you are buying food and things like that on credit from the store, the landlord or the store owner can charge any price that he wants. By the end of the year, families often found that no matter how big a cotton crop they made, they were still in debt at the end of the year from what they had borrowed from the landlord. Over time, more and more people came to feel 
that sharecropping trapped them in relationships of debt. The problem was it was very hard for them to find other jobs. African Americans in particular who wanted to, the, to move to the North uh, were unable to accumulate the capital to enable them to make that, no that move. And when they did succeed in moving North, often uh, they found themselves um, not welcomed, chased out of towns, uh, refused access to particular kinds of jobs. And Southern uh, landlords controlled the politics of their particular states. Often they were able to literally chase down sharecroppers who walked out on contracts and walked out on debts, no matter how unfair, uh, and put them in jail, put them to forced labor on road, uh, road crews, chain gangs, and things like that. Uh, vagrancy laws, all kinds of laws were created in order to trap people more firmly in this long-term bondage. But one interesting thing that happened was that over time, fewer and fewer as a percentage of the total number of sharecroppers were African-American. Increasingly, poor whites who had lost their land or maybe had never land, owned land at all found themselves in these same kind of relationships. Because of that, by the time you get to the 1930s, two-thirds of all sharecroppers, and there are about nine million of them by that point, are actually white. Over time, the number of sharecroppers increases dramatically, and the number of acres that are committed to growing cotton increases dramatically. And so it shouldn't surprise you that the total size of the U.S. cotton crop eventually recovers from its steep decline in the 1860s during the time of war and emancipation. By the late 1870s, in fact, the United States is producing as much cotton as it produced in the late 1850s. But it's doing so with many more workers committed to that project. In fact, over time, from the 1860s to the 1920s, the average productivity of labor in the sharecropping cotton economy declines approximately 1% per year overall. And there are many reasons for this. There's a decline in soil for fertility that uh, people try to ameliorate by importing lots of fertilizer. There's the arrival of new pests like the boll weevil, which moves north and east from Mexico starting in the late 1870s. But above all, what you see is that cotton before the Civil War was produced by organized, calibrated, carefully measured force delivered in the form of torture. Without that possible, it was simply not possible at all for workers, whether they are white or black, deeply indebted, not indebted, landowners, sharecroppers, tenants, it didn't matter. It's not possible for them to produce at the same level that enslaved people were able to produce. And if you look at cotton records, you see that free people simply did not pick as much cotton as quickly as enslaved people. So the decline in productivity at least before the arrival of a mechanical cotton picker, which is first on the scene in the late 1930s, that decline in productivity is probably inevitable. But in an economy, a regional economy in the South and a wider national economy that is predicated on getting export revenues from the production of cotton, what this meant was that the United States in general and the South in particular had to find new ways to make profit, to make enough revenue, to continue to grow the economy at the rate it had been growing before the Civil War. 
Sharecropping as an institution is a sort of machine for trapping laborers in difficult economic circumstances. And it was trapping more and more people every year in the South, thousands and thousands of them, until by the early 20th century, it was something like nine million in all. But these people who were experiencing high debt, dropping commodity prices, and a sort of closing economic future we're still citizens of the United States. And so it's not surprising that they organized politically to resist the circumstances in which they found themselves. And so beginning in the 1870s, often working with farmers in other parts of the country, and at times with workers who are participating in the new industrial labor movements, sharecroppers in the South organized a series of third party and other movements that attempted to change the system of economics and politics in the South. Ultimately, these would culminate in the movement that we call populism. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist, or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.